2: Welcome to the show. This is the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as you know, this is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about things going on in your life, uh, questions about church, whatever's on your heart. All you need to do is call us, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen Everything also be hints for you. you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, it's Tuesday, so we don't have anything going on. We'll get right to the questions. One thing that I have been asked to do is to give an update on Zach Adams. Now, for those of you who might be new believers, we've been praying for Zach Adams for, oh gosh, four or five months now in total. A little background, uh, Sandy Adams is Zach's dad. Sandy is a dear friend of mine and a fellow Calvary Chapel pastor in Stone Mountain, Georgia. A wonderful Bible teacher, by the way, and a good guy. Uh, His son developed covid And had one of the most extreme cases uh, of any. I've heard Zach is 38 years old. He has a wife and three children. Uh, He is a pastor of a church that Sandy planted in the Atlanta area. And um, um, he 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 nearly died several times, and they were we were asking for prayer for a miraculous recovery. Well, that miraculous recovery didn't occur. Uh, he's been in the hospital or had been in the hospital for almost ninety days, and um, the vigil was literally around the clock for him because it just didn't look like he would survive. Uh, he is at home now. And uh, Sandy and the family are calling it a miracle. Um, However, um, he does not have the use of his arms or legs. Um, We're we're prayerfully hoping that that comes back. Um, He has a, a diminished breathing capacity, a significant diminished breathing capacity. Uh, His um, lungs and breathing have been affected. So he is far from out of the woods, uh, but the family is just thanking God for um, having sustained him to the point where he is. And we would ask, Sandy asked that I would communicate to all of you to continue praying for Zach and his family because he is still a long way from being better, a long way from... um, Um, even being assured that he would have a a normal future of any kind. So thank you for the request and um, any opportunity to remind us of our responsibility to pray. That's great. Here's a question from Lynette from our email inbox. And Lynette, God bless you. You've been studying Revelation like crazy. Uh, Revelation 4-5. Now, your email, Lynette, says Revelations. It is not plural. It's singular revelation. Chapter 4, verse 5, where John writes, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And Lynette asks, Is this the same ones, uh, or the peals of thunder and the flashes of lightning, uh, that in the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh vial? Is this also the same throne as Matthew 25, verse 31? Lynette, they are not connected. Um, Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. Uh, we're just we're we're shifting the scene uh, from the things that are. Remember in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, you have the whole outline of the book of Revelation. When John is told to write the things you have seen, that refers to chapter one, that glorious revelation of Jesus Christ that John experienced. And then he says, write the things that are. And John, of course, was alive in the first century churches, and he was writing the things that were uh, as they were during that time, and that's Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches, and then he says, write the things that are yet to come, or the things that will come after these things. And that's the third division of the book of Revelation. And Lynette, that begins in chapter 4 and all the way through the end of the chapter, or the end of the book, rather. So those are the things that that uh, John was told to write. Now, when you get to Revelation chapter 5 the one thing we've got to remember is that chapter 4, there is a lot of symbolism in here. Um, I'll just give you a quick example. Uh, the, the, the chapter starts out with, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet. It wasn't a trumpet, but it was like a trumpet. That's symbolic. Um, in verse 2, At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, uh, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Now, the appearance of, again, these things are clearly symbolic. Now, here's where we have to understand what these peals of thunder and flashes of lightning were all about. They're symbols. They're not literal. They speak of a coming storm of judgment. Remember, the world has not seen a judgment like is going to be unleashed beginning in chapter 6 of this book. So this is just God uh, giving us symbols of this coming storm of judgment. Now, the, the same symbols were seen and heard on Mount Sinai when Moses was given the law it was an awesome sight it was so terrifying that the jews shook with fear these are symbols of god's righteous judgment and revelation is the book which turns from grace to judgment and and it just means that when the church is gone after the re- rapture of the church which occurs in revelation chapter 4 verse 1 um then then god turns his attention to uh, a world that has to be judged, and that's what the last seven years of history we know it as a great tribulation really are all about so Lynette, not the same. these are symbols, and um, um, when you get into the judgments, you'll see different judgments and different responses and and most of the time, the difference between a symbolic um, uh, expression of judgment and the and the real judgment. Uh, Those differences are pretty clear. So they were not at all um, the same. They are symbols, Revelation chapter 4. Lynette, thank you. And keep studying the book of Revelation. You're you're getting some real blessings stored up for you. Um, The first chapter says, blessed are those who read and those who hear and those who do what is written in this book. And Lynette, uh, that's where you are. Good question. Here's a question from Ricardo. He says, "I know that God has forgiven me, but I have a hard time forgiving myself. Could I have your thoughts on how to deal with this, um, Ricardo?" Um, yeah, and don't don't take this personal. But but anybody who says, "I know God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself," that is uh, uh, an expression of pride that needs to be dealt with. How is it possible that we know that an Almighty holy God can forgive us but I can't forgive myself it's almost like we're we're in the process of playing God now I understand how the devil condemns but remember we got to remember from Romans 8 1 that when we feel condemned that is an attack from the enemy of our souls you never feel condemned when God convicts you uh, truly we, we need to be convicted if we're living our lives out from under that place where God wants us to be uh, but, but the idea that, uh, well, I believe in God, I believe in the Bible, I take what he says as literal, but then you say, I can't forgive myself. That's just pride. That's putting yourself on a platform above God, and, and basically what you're saying is, I know what's written, I know what I'm supposed to believe, but I just can't believe that you're you're, you're loving enough to forgive me. So these are one of those things, Ricardo, you've got to disregard your feelings altogether in favor of what is written. Um, Ricardo, I, I don't know what kind of sins you're guilty of, that you're having a hard time forgiving yourself of, but here's what I can promise you. They are almost certainly not as bad as the things I did before I got saved. They're certainly not as bad as the things the Apostle Paul was guilty of as Saul of Tarsus. Paul said that he was the chief of sinners or the worst of all sinners. And yet God forgave him. So what we've got to do is we've got to decide by faith whether we believe what God has promised us, what's written in the Bible, and whether or not we're going to live our lives according to what he says or according to how we feel. And so you got to deal with it. It's pride. Um, it's, it's I know it doesn't feel like that. Um, it's thinking too highly of yourself. Um, in my 27 years, almost 27 years as a pastor, I've learned that there is no end to the evil things that men and women can do, even professing Christian men and women, when in fact we're not walking according to the power of God's Spirit. So, Ricardo, if you say I know God has forgiven me, read First John. I write these things that you may know, and if you really know God has forgiven you, then you should have any difficulty at all forgiving yourself. So, I hope that's clear to you, Ricardo. This just this is going to be a challenge to your faith. Who and what do you believe? Do you believe what you feel? Do you believe an enemy whose job it is to lie? and steal, destroy, or are you going to believe what's written in the Word? For me, when I got saved, Ricardo, the most unbelievable and at the same time magnificent truth that I wrestled with in a good way from that very beginning was, how could God forgive someone like me? And yet my next response would be, praise the Lord, He has forgiven me. And I had to decide whether I really believed that. And once you make that decision, then you can throw everything behind you and you can move forward with Jesus. But as long as you're doubting his ability to love and forgive you, then you're still stuck in a place that certainly wasn't prepared by God. It was prepared by the devil in order to trap you. Here's a question from Lionel. He said, Should our participation as believers be centered on our church, the local church, or parachurch groups that do work that appeals to me. Uh, Lionel, this is actually one of my um, little hobby horses to get on. Uh, As believers, our time, our talent, and our treasure is first devoted to our church. That's the group of believers that God has put us in. We're a part of a body, and we're to use our gifts to benefit the body. Now, that doesn't preclude parachurch groups or other kinds of work uh, that, that, that's going on. But first and foremost, the obligation is to your local church family. And I understand that some people do not like to be under authority. I understand that there there might be people sitting in a church say, well, I don't like what that church is doing with the money, so I'm not going to give the money. I'll give my money to God through another ministry. Um, that is, I, I think, uh, a, a really horrible place spiritually for anybody to be. We need to be a blessing to the people in our church first. That's why our time and our talent, serving others begins there. But it's also true that the money we give needs to go first to the church. And again, I understand in uh, talking at the other side of my mouth, I don't understand uh, why people want to give to other organizations. I think it's a control uh, of their money. It's an issue where they just want to determine how the money is spent. And as you indicate in your question, Lionel, it just means that the People will give to that which is of interest to them. Um, but, but our wagon needs to be hitched to the local church and parachurch organizations uh, that try to solicit from church members. Uh, they're missing the point. Every ministry for God needs to be under accountability, and it needs to be under the accountability of the local church. So, Lionel, I hope that makes sense. We would love your calls today for questions or thoughts. 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from Liberty. In the Old Testament, was it possible for Gentiles to become Jews and be saved? Yes, Liberty, and it happened all the time. They were called proselytes or converted Jews, uh, converted from pagan religions to Judaism. And it happened all the time. In fact, that's one of the reasons that God showed off for and through Israel, his people, so many times. You can go all the way back to Egypt and, and having left um, uh, God's people, um, relieved them, taken them out of Egypt. He did it so that everybody in the world could see that, that the God of the Jews really was the God, the only God. And there's always, when um, um, one of the translations uses the term rabble, when they left, they took a lot of the rabble with them. That doesn't mean bad people. That just means people that weren't Jews. So, yeah, there's always been people who wanted to serve the real God, and they um, they came to that decision uh, of their own choice. And uh, in many cases, it cost them dearly, uh, but, but they wanted to do it. Um, uh, Simon from Cyrene is a, an example I love to to, to think about. Um, he was a convert to Judaism from Libya, the, the north coast of Africa. And um, he came to the Passover as a converted Jew, a proselyte Jew. Um, but, but he was uh, not a naturally born Jew. And the result, praise the Lord, the result is he came face-to-face with Jesus, not in any way that he would have expected nor necessarily wanted, but he came face-to-face with Jesus, gave his heart to Jesus Christ, and, and uh, uh, he, along with his sons Rufus and Alexander, became huge figures in the early church. So uh, the answer to your question is yes, it w- is possible or was possible, and it happened all the time. Jason says, Jason knows my answer. I'm interested in a girl who's not a believer. She's religious, but not born again. Is God okay with this? Jason, you asked me this question knowing the answer. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's what the Bible says. And it's, it's something, if the Bible says it, we know it's the word of God, then we've got to agree with God. You know, it's amazing to me, Jason, that people like in your situation and it gets a lot worse than this as well but people who claim to be Christians won't agree with Christ the bible says to not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers that's exactly what it means and so what you need to do jason is just lose your interest now it doesn't mean you're not going to you're going to immediately stop liking her or being interested in her but you've got to decide that since she is off limits she's not for you And this is a place where we make a choice between being obedient to God or being obedient to our flesh, um, um, being faithful to the Word of God, or compromising the Word of God. And God is not okay with this period. I am forever curious why people think God would be okay with two people becoming one flesh when one of those people is never going to go to heaven. I'm just amazed by that. And yet we, we, we convince ourselves it's okay. Uh, but the truth is we really know it's not okay. And that means, Jason, you are accountable to God to be obedient. He's not okay with it. And what you've got to do is just say, Thank you, Lord, for uh, only wanting the best for me. And I'm going to wait for you. I'm going to follow you. And when the right time comes... Uh, and, and a believing woman comes into my life, well, then I'll pursue her or, or that relationship. But to, uh, to to even consider being married to an unbeliever is almost impossible. Now, I don't want to be naive, and we're inside about three and a half minutes, I think, now for this half of the program. Um, I, I understand being attracted to people. I understand... Um, trying to figure out loopholes in the Bible, you know, to get what you want. Um, but the reality is, is Jesus loves you. He has a plan for you. And this girl isn't going to help you. In fact, she will end up distracting you. Paula was reading to me uh, today um, out of First uh, Kings chapter 14. My study will be, uh, that's where my study will be tomorrow night. And Rehoboam, we're told twice in chapter 14, and this is the chapter about Jeroboam's fall and Rehoboam's fall um, the, during their reigns, which brought disgrace to God. Um, and twice when discussing Rehoboam, it says, and his, and his wife's name was Naama, and, and, and she was an Ammonite. Now, the Ammonites were horrible enemies of God's people from the beginning. And it says at the beginning of the, the passage about Rehoboam and at the very end of that passage uh, in chapter 14, uh, the Holy Spirit points out two times that the woman he was married to in this particular case, now he had other wives and concubines, but this woman uh, was a uh, an emanate. And it's the Holy Spirit saying, see what happens when you marry somebody that God doesn't want you to be with. We sometimes think that God is is... Trended it ruin our fun. It doesn't want us to be happy. He knows the pain that's involved, and I'll just say this, Jason, and then we'll we'll move on. Um, uh, of all the counseling that we do, and and I do uh, most of it, and Pastor Kin, uh, Pastor Kin and I do most of it. Um, the 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 most painful thing that we have to deal with in counseling is with unequally yoked marriages. So. You've got to decide. Do you love Jesus? Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And if you love him, uh, you will obey him. And you will no longer be interested in this girl uh, because she's simply off limits for you. Here's a quick one I can do. Marcy says, what is the difference between being a theist and a Christian? Well, one is heaven and one is hell. A Christian, a born-again Christian. Uh, We're going to heaven, a theist, that's somebody who acknowledges God, but doesn't really believe that God is that involved in our lives. It's not a personal relationship or that God doesn't care about all the things going on. He's sort of ambivalent to to the things in our world, Um, a theist. Many of our founding fathers were theists. Some others were deists. But remember, Marcy, uh, except a man be born again, he or she will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's the difference. A Christian believes not only that God is real, but he has a name. His name is Jesus. And he died that we could be close to him and that our God wants to be involved in every aspect of our lives. A theist just acknowledges there is a God and there is no virtue, no value at all eternally in that. Well, we have 30 minutes left in the Tuesday show. Phones are quiet. We'd love your calls. 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes.
1: to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show. The phones have been quiet and I'm boring. You're much more interesting. 340-9585. Here's a question from Anthony. He says, our world is so difficult and confused. Why won't God show himself to us so we know for sure what is true? Anthony, this is a question that really perplexes me. And when I say it perplexes me, um, I just don't understand. It's exactly what he did. God showed himself to us in the form of a human. That's historical. There is no denying the overwhelming evidence that Jesus Christ proved himself to be God. He became one of us because it takes a man to die for the sins of man, a perfect man. But but also a, a, a God who could become a man so he could empathize or even sympathize with human beings in the condition that we're in. And when people say, why doesn't God show himself? Um, you know, what do we want him to do? Show up in the sky? Oh, wait, he did that when he ascended into the heavens. What do we want him to do? Come in and, and do some miracles? Well, he did that too. So, Anthony, I really don't understand. Our world is difficult and confused, and I'm going to add the word broken. Our world is the way it is because we reject the evidence of God, and what He's already done for us. And so, not only will He has He shown Himself to us. The truth is, we didn't care. Not only are the miracles that Jesus did beyond any question in terms of their veracity. We simply don't care. We we just we'll we'll do something now. And 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 further, it's true that if God just showed up one day. Let's say it's middle of the night and he shows up and his light engulfs the world in Jesus and Jesus says, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God and God the Son. I command you to repent and believe. The world still wouldn't. So Anthony, because he's already done it and he was rejected, the same thing would be true now. If he showed up, he would be rejected. All we have to do is examine the evidence and believe. And then things will begin to make sense. Anthony, our world is not going to get better. I think this is another weakness that we have in Western Christianity. We we have this need to... to, We're basically good at heart and God is a loving God, so why doesn't God make this a, a better world? God didn't ruin this world. He made it perfect. Humans and sin ruined it. And one day he's going to come back. He's going to show everybody who he is. And he's going to force us for 1,000 years to live by his rules. And still, multitudes of people are going to be deceived and rebel against him at the end of the 1,000 years. So, Anthony, reconsider your perspective a little bit. Let's go to Cindy on line one from San Antonio. Cindy, Cindy. Thank you for bailing me out. You're on the air.
3: Hi, Pastor Ron. I've got a couple things. One, I was thinking about Adam and Eve when they were in the garden before the fall, and I would, I would think that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. But then when they were taken out of the garden, I wondered if they, if they were filled with the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit left them. Or if they still would have been, if they still would have had the Holy Spirit, that was one thing. And the other thing, I was reading about John the Baptist. I was real curious about this verse. It's in chapter one of Luke, and it's um, let's see. Okay, it, it's it's uh fourteen or f- okay, it's fifteen, verse fifteen in chapter one of Luke. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he, this is the part I'm calling about right here. And he will be mm-hmm. filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. And I was wondering if the word filled was supposed to be filled or if it's supposed to be in the Holy Spirit would be upon him. Uh, so anyways, I think you've probably answered that question before, but yeah. I just want to hear it again. And I'll get off the phone and get my
2: <laughs> Thank you, thank you, Cindy. I can explain that one uh, the easy. So I'll start with that, and then we'll go to Adam and Eve and the Holy Spirit. Um, um, the, the word "filled" Greek uh, is is "epi," um, upon. And so John was an exception. Later, Jesus would say, uh, when he breathed, uh, the resurrected Christ breathed on his disciples and said, "Receive ye the Holy Spirit of God." Then were given in the narrative an explanation for he the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. John was an exception to that rule. That's one of the reasons he was the greatest man um, um, of all the prophets until um, the, the time that, that uh, the kingdom of heaven visited, when, when Jesus uh, and, and the church was born. So uh, John was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, just exactly what it says, and he was, uh, his ministry was unique. His personality was unique. Everything about his ministry was um, um, different than anything that had come before. So yes, he was filled with the Holy Spirit uh, from birth. Um, Again, he was a human. He wasn't perfect. Uh, He had doubts at times. Are you the one or should we wait for another? Um, He had to Tends to look out at circumstances just like we do, who are filled with the Holy Spirit. But yeah, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, regarding Adam and Eve, and I, 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 this is an intriguing question to me. I love these kind of questions, just to think about them. But Adam and Eve, when they were created by God, they didn't need the Holy Spirit. They were born in a perfect creation, and and both born by the finger of God Himself. They didn't need the Holy Spirit. They had no sin nature. Um, they they were they were perfect in every way. They walked in the cool of the garden with God. Uh, they could look upon God in all of His glory and whatever form that glory appeared in the Garden of Eden. Um, and yet, still, because they were humans, God knew they needed to make a choice of their own free will. So that's when the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was planted. Uh, in the garden on their behalf. All the other trees you can have, but not this one. So they didn't need the Holy Spirit until sin entered the world, and then they didn't have the Holy Spirit because he hadn't yet been given. We're very hard on Old Testament figures, well they should know better than this, why are they uh why did they fail when they knew what God said? I mean we would think Adam especially was very accountable because God told him face to face uh but remember, they did not have the Holy Spirit that we do to resist temptation, and when Satan deceived Eve, Adam had a choice to make: am I going to stay with God and be faithful to him and lose Eve, or am I going to Follow Eve's example, and forsake God, and that's the choice as we all know that He made, and that's when sin entered the world. But remember, when He walked in the garden with God, there was no need. It's always interesting to me, you know, when they, when they were hiding from God, God knew where they were. Adam, where art thou? <laughs> um, we're over here hiding because we were naked, and we're ashamed. Before, they couldn't see their nakedness because the glory of God surrounded them. But when the glory departed, Ichabod, when the glory departed from Adam and Eve, they could see that they were naked. That's not to to indicate that there's anything shameful about the human body. That's the point. What they were ashamed of is that the glory was gone. And now they were on their own. So great question, Cindy. I love when you ask those questions monica says pastor on hebrews 10:26 and 7 scare me could you please explain what they mean uh, let me read it and then i'll explain it monica this is a passage of scripture that scares a lot of people along with hebrews chapter uh, 6 um, it says if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Monica, we have to understand the context of Hebrews. People get really freaked out by Hebrews because they think, oh, you can lose your salvation, and if you mess up, God will never take you back. That's to miss the entire point and context of Hebrews. Paul is writing, and I believe Paul to be the author of Hebrews, Paul is writing to Jews who converted to Christianity because they saw the power of God. They experienced the Holy Spirit. Um, They were being persecuted. And and the book of Hebrews takes from anywhere, covers a period of time from from 20 to 30 years. And uh, over time, they got tired of that persecution. I think it's chapter 10 that says, you know, you once accepted persecution um, uh, proudly, happily because you understood you were standing for something that matters. You were standing for God. But now, because they were tiring of the persecution, they were being told that all they had to do is renounce Jesus Christ, become Jews again, and um, um, the persecution would stop. Now, if the persecution stopped, then their life, they would assume, would get better, easier, for sure. Um, And so here's what Paul says to him. If you keep on sinning, after you've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice of sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. What he's saying is, if you desert Jesus and return to a religion where you know there's no sacrifice for sins left, then what you're doing is demonstrating you never really belong to him. So Hebrews... Well, it ought to be the book that, that, that really is the most comforting in terms of our eternal security. People read it and absolutely freak out. And all Paul was doing was saying, and I'll do it the way I would say it to people. Look, you know what's true. You know who Jesus is. You know that he's forgiven your sins. So if you turn away from him, what are you going to do for sins? What are you going to do for the rest of your life? And that's what he's saying. And basically, somebody that is a deliberate sinner is identifying themselves as not being a Christian at all. On line one, I know who this is. It's Paula's little sister. How are you doing, little sis?
3: I'm doing okay today. Had a really, really busy day, but I'm home now, and I'm grateful to be home. Hey, I have a question for you. So in studying Hebrews, and you just finished mentioning chapter six and that's where my question comes from um verse four through six i'd like your interpretive explanation for that because yes i understand that a lot of people use that as um a way of saying okay you can use, lose your salvation but we know that that's not true so would you share with that
2: I, I will thank you very very much, Lisa. And, and you're talking about Hebrews six, right?
3: Yeah, Hebrews chapter six, verses yes. four through six.
2: Okay, here I'm going to read it and then we'll talk about it because this is similar to the same question that, that we just had from Monica. It says it is possible for those who have won it, I'm sorry, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Who have tasted the goodness of the word of god and the powers of the coming age if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the son of god all over again and subjecting him jesus to public disgrace now if that if if we took that on the surface if we took it out of the context of the, the entire letter um, we would have to conclude that anybody who's made a profession of faith in christ and then sinned after that, it would be impossible to repent and be be reunited with Jesus Christ again. Because in our sin, in turning away from God, then what we're doing is we're crucifying Him all over again. We're, 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 we're rejecting the finished work of the Christ. Now, we know that's not possible. Um, uh, Peter is an example. Peter denied Jesus three times. Um, um Christians all, throughout the history of the world have sinned against God, we've fallen away, and because 1 john one nine says if we confess our sins, that word means to agree with God, he God is faithful and just to forgive us and restore us or or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. so we know that we can repent and be brought back to god and and if you read that. Out of context, um, you would you would have to assume that, that uh, you get one chance. God forgave you of for your sin, you get one chance, and then it's impossible. That's not what he's doing here. This is an exhortation, beginning in verse 4. This is an exhortation to those Jews who are um, thinking about leaving the faith, returning to Judaism, simply so that their lives will get easier, so that the persecution that they're enduring, will stop. And basically what he's saying is, look, uh, what are you going to do for sin? Uh, You know, offerings aren't going to do it. Uh, um, You've been enlightened. You know the truth, that the the sin offerings, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to to do away with sin. Um, um, It's impossible to to come back. We know, at that's not true. So the book of Hebrews, is, is there's six and some would, would say seven warnings in the book, and all of them have the same context. And the, 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 the result is this is simply saying, and, and I'll, I'll culturalize it for us, let's say there's a Christian. Uh, somebody who's been in the church, they've experienced what the fellowship of the body is like, they've had experiences with the Holy Spirit, and then they come to you and said something like, well, you know, I tried Christianity, but it didn't work for me, so now I'm going to try to be a Muslim, or now I'm going to try to be a Buddhist, or now I'm going to try... And we would say, well, what are you going to do for your sin? None of those religions offer forgiveness of sin. So what are you going to do for sin? And we could say, if you persist in that direction, then you are lost. See, we've got, again, First John. that talks about restoration. We've got Paul's letters to the churches in Thessalonica. And such were some of you, but now. So clearly we know that we can sin and then repent and be immediately reconnected to the Lord. We know that once we are walking in the will of God, we have the power of God in the person of the Holy Spirit living in our lives. There's no other religion or belief system that can provide those things. So that's what that means, and you've got to read it in the context of the passage. You know, just for information purposes, Leisha, uh, in um, um, when, when the book of Hebrews, it was the last of the New Testament books to be accepted officially, um, by by the the councils uh, as as canon of scripture, and and their reasons were because they weren't reading it in context, and they were they they were thinking, well, this can't be because it violates other uh, doctrines that we know are true that are cod codified by our Bible, um, and 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 also it was because the uh, the author didn't identify himself, so they considered that there might not be any apostolic authority. But when you read the book of Hebrews, and I've read it hundreds of times, I've taught it, I think, at our church three times, Uh, when you read the book of Hebrews, you come away, I come away convinced of two things. First, that Paul is the author, Um, that that whole book is his heart. Secondly, you come away with uh, the, the, the sense that we are so eternally secure in Jesus Christ that we never have to worry about losing our salvation. And that's why this loving author, the Apostle Paul, provided those series of warnings. And they go from gradually drifting away from God, which is where we all start. That's where we all begin uh, getting in danger um, from that place uh, all the way to um, warnings against outright apostasy. And and it's a really good book to read together. If you, if you ever get the time just to sit down and read it, read it slowly, and understand the degrees of the warnings, the seriousness and the urgency of the warnings, you come away uh, with this idea that um, God loves me so very much. Now, one other thing I want to draw your attention to, Leisha, if you go down to verse 9, and this sets the context of of chapter 6, Uh, Verse 9, Paul says, Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things, in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. In other words, I know you're going through persecution. I know things are scary. But God will remember all of the sacrifices you made. And that's Paul's way of saying, hang in there. That's what he says in verse 11. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. So, Alicia, thank you for the question. Uh, Hebrews, um, people don't read carefully enough. and uh, they See, you can't lose your salvation, and I know I'm going to lose it, and the devil is right there to condemn you at the time. Let's go to another question. Um, Here's a question Harley. Interesting. Harley says, Pastor Run, what about sins we commit in our dreams? Harley, you are not accountable for what you dream. Um, And I want to just join you and praise God for that. Because I have horrible dreams. One of the last things I do before laying down is, Lord, please protect our hearts, our dreams, our nightmares, and our bodies physically, because I have horrible nightmares. And uh, I do horrible things in those nightmares. And I'm convinced that's a spiritual attack. And I am overjoyed because I'm not at all accountable for what I do in an unconscious state. It's just a dream. It could be what you ate. It could be the things that you've been occupying your mind with. It could be just the pressure or the stress of everyday life that gets to people. And Satan will take advantage of that. Now, I have absolutely demonic dreams. um, But not all of my bad dreams or uncomfortable dreams are demonic. Sometimes it's just my hyperactive subconscious kicking into gear um, but you're not accountable for anything you do. Um, what I find myself doing, Harley, when I find myself in dreams where I'm in sin, and most of them, uh, just for me personally, most of them uh, are in connection with the church. I've I've done something wrong. Uh, I'm caught in the act of sin or something, and I'm going to lose everything. Um, um, they they startle me awake, and my first thought is, oh. Thank you, Jesus. That was only a dream. That's not who I am, nor how I want to respond to your goodness in my life. So, Harley, that's all you do. You just remember that you're only accountable for the conscious sins you make, things that you know are wrong, and choose to do anyway. This will be the last question of the day. We're running out of time. Charles says, have you read about Greg Coles, a gay Christian who advocates celibacy? Um, Charles, I, I didn't know that I had, uh, some contact with Greg, um, until, uh, I got this question and I looked him up and uh, Greg Coles, there's a wonderful interview he does with a pastor named Preston Sprinkle, who is a little bit on the progressive side. Um, but, but he's interested in really ministering to people that are suffering from, um, sexual identity issues. Uh, And Greg Coles is a guy who, in my case, in my my mind, is a hero. He is a man who is same-sex attracted. He's realized that he's same-sex attracted from the very beginning of his life. As soon as he started uh, interacting with girls and men, he's realized it. But he was also a young man raised in church, a a born-again believer who loved Jesus Christ. And his response to his same-sex attraction is, I guess God wants me to live a celibate life. That's the very definition of what a Christian is. Jesus said, to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And that's exactly what Greg Coles is doing. And uh, I've heard him, uh, going back now four or five years, um a smart guy very young in appearance and lots of exuberance but um this is exactly what someone in our world who is same sex attracted um you know got to give up the, the the idea that you can pray the gay away or that god is going to change you sometimes that happens but more often than not Uh, Men like Greg Coles honor the Lord by saying, yes, this is who I am. I am gay. I'm attracted to men. But because I love Jesus, I'm going to do what he wants instead of what I want. So, Charles, I have no problem with him. I I think that's uh, somebody that's worth listening to. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On For Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then.